And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Uh, there are a lot of professionals who think that diversification is truly the key to successful investing. But before I get into that topic, which I, I really am excited to uh, discuss, I want to spend a few minutes talking about a conversation I had today with Chris Pedersen. Uh, as most of you know, he is the person who has done all the work on putting together the ETF portfolios, uh, particularly the best in class. And one of the goals that we had was to uh, hopefully be able to emulate the DFA, Dimensional Funds, uh, advisors is the name of the fund family, but to be able to produce with the ETFs uh, access to asset classes that have basically uh, not been replicated by anybody else in the industry the way that that DFA does it, and it is it is was 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 heartening when we back tested. Uh, the ETFs uh, some 10 years and found that, in fact, the returns were uh, slightly better uh, over that 10-year period uh, than uh, comparable DFA funds. And uh, this is particularly meaningful because it means that small investors uh, will have access to what I think have been um, superior long-term returns versus working directly uh, with Vanguard funds. Now, as you may know, the best-in-class ETFs are all available through Vanguard. Uh, Vanguard has some 1,800 ETFs that they allow investors to, to, to invest in without paying commissions. Uh, they still have to, to pay the spread between the bid and the ask, but no commission. Now, the other source of these uh, ETFs that, uh, that, that Chris has uh, come up with for this best-in-class portfolio, the other source that, that we use is M1. M1 gives us an advantage, and, and investors an advantage, in that you are able to, to um, get access to these ETFs with partial shares. Uh, at Vanguard, you have to buy whole shares, which makes it a little bit more complicated to figure out how many shares of each ETF, but that's not a problem with M1. Also, with M1, if there's $10 sitting in the account, because of dividends or because you added $10 to the account, it is on a monthly basis going to uh, invest that money to nudge you uh, closer to the asset allocation that you started with. Uh, that's a topic for another day. But I just want to bring you up to date. I asked Chris if he would run the numbers for the first six months of this year using the DFA funds, 
basically 10% each in U.S. large cap blend, U.S. large cap value, U.S. small cap blend, U.S. small cap value, uh, and 10% in REITs. Uh, then another 10% in international large cap blend, uh, international large cap value, uh, international small cap blend, international small cap value, and finally a 10% in a, a portfolio of emerging markets that includes some large and some small, some value, some growth. So this is a hugely a diversified portfolio. Uh, and if you were in th that DFA portfolio, without the fees, by the way, for the first six months of the year, you would have made 13.1%. Uh, With the portfolio that does the same thing, but using ETFs, uh, the return was 13.94. Again, the 13.1 uh, does not include uh, any investment advisory fee, and the 13.94 uh, does not include any spreads between the bid and ask uh, as the portfolio uh, might be rebalanced or changed during that period. Um, now, this is obviously a very short period of time, but it's real time. And the, 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 you know, the real question here is, how good a job did Chris do of uh, emulating the DFA portfolio? And it appears to me that he did a very good job. But we will continue to, uh, to report on a, probably every six months how the DFA is doing versus the uh, the, uh, the ETFs, and 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 Chris is sensitive uh, to uh, the that that difference uh, because uh, there are a lot of people who would love to save money but don't have the discipline to maintain the work, and so uh, I will. Uh, uh, I will support Chris in his belief that uh, it's it, it it isn't a good idea to do it on your own with ETFs if you're not going to do the work to maintain the discipline. Of course, the advantage of M1 uh, is that uh, um, they pretty much do all the work for you, and that the portfolio is periodically uh, automatically rebalanced as new money comes into the account. So enough of that. I want to talk about diversification. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's something that most everybody who believes in prudent investing, they'll tell you that it is certainly one of the most important topics. Uh, I think that uh, one way to look at that is to simply do a search for the number one rule for successful investing. And you'll find that diversification uh, is very often number one. Remember, don't put all your eggs in one basket. 
that does make the <laughs> the 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 number one rule in many lists. Now you may remember that uh, with Warren Buffett, uh, he said rule number one is don't lose money, and rule number two is don't forget rule number one. Uh, what is interesting about that rule uh, is uh, the Buffett rule is that it, he has l- lost tons of money along the way. He's really talking not about the short term, but about the long term. Anyway, diversification is important. And Rich Buck and I just did an article on diversification. Uh, and that that includes, I think we ended up including some 10 uh, things you should know about diversification. But there's really more. Uh, if you want to dig into all the different ways that diversification uh, can have an impact on your uh, return, uh, it's, a, it's a lot more than those 10. So I decided I'm going to find 20. And in fact, uh, I do have 20 things here that I think are uh, important things to understand about diversification. And I'm not I'm not going to insult you by counting them. I may end up, by the way, having 21. I may end up having 19. If you want to take the time to count them, that's fine. But the bottom line is I want to give you all the things that I know that are important about diversification. I wrote an article years ago about what I consider to be uh, the number, the best quote, the best rule uh, about investing. Uh, And there are lots of, of meaningful and important rules, but the one I came up with is never take a risk if there isn't an expected premium for taking the risk. In other words, if you can identify a risk and you can eliminate that risk and still make the same amount of money, then you you should not take the risk uh, if you can't get the premium. So that, in essence is what diversification is about. You see, through diversification, you can eliminate a risk without an expectation of a lower return. In fact, as you'll see in a few minutes, you may actually, through diversification, uh, have the probability of getting a higher return. So let, before I dig into that uh, specific uh, about making more money by uh, taking less risk, let me just make sure that we give a definition for what diversification is as it applies to investing. And if you look at the the, the Investopedia a definition, what you'll see is that in finance and investment planning, 
portfolio diversification is the risk management strategy of combining a variety of assets to reduce the overall risk of an investment portfolio. So diversification is an attempt to reduce risk while still offering a return for the risk taken. So we all know that you can invest in one stock and it will probably go up and down with the market. Most of them do. But you also carry the risk of default, of losing everything. It's called bankruptcy. Uh, And by investing in hundreds, or as in my own portfolio, thousands, and not just a few thousand, but over 12,000 different companies, uh, by doing that, I have reduced, certainly, uh, the impact of any one company or even even 20 companies going out of business. So um, diversification is an amazing risk management tool. Now, what I learned many years ago from the academics, um, and it certainly didn't come out of Wall Street because Wall Street uh, would want you to believe that uh, when you pick one of those stocks they recommend, that you're going to do better than the market. Otherwise, why would they recommend it? So what we also know is that the academics tell us that the expected return of one stock is the average return of all stocks in that asset class. So, in theory, the return of one large-cap growth stock is the average of all large-cap growth stocks. The average of one small-cap value stock is the average of all small-cap value stocks. And, um, and, and, And so, if that's the reality, if we really can say that that's true then we would want to own all of the stocks or at least many of the stocks because each individual company has the risk of going out of business, whereas owning all doesn't. Now, sure, in the short term, one company can earn 10 times the average of all the stocks in its particular asset class. Or it can go broke. So when the academics say that the expected return is the average of all, is they're simply saying that while every investor may have the hope or the the belief that the stocks they pick are going to beat the market, that belief does not lead, in fact, to higher returns. There is a study in... um, Jason Zweig's book, uh, Your Money and Your Brain, that uh, talks about the, uh, the value of stocks when people own them versus the, uh, the value of stocks when people don't own them. And I'm sure it won't surprise you to find out that if investors own a company, 
They have a belief it's worth a lot more than if investors do not own that company. And then when I had this sense that the smart thing to do is to do, to own all of the companies because the expected rate of return of one is that of all, um, uh, I I could see that I eliminated stock risk, the risk of a particular business going out, uh, going into bankruptcy. But then along comes Dr. Bessembinder uh, in a, re- a recently released study, and I've talked about this several times, and it's entitled, Do Stocks Outperform Treasury Bills? And what was shocking about this study is that when they looked at all of the public stocks going back to 1926, they found a couple of things. One thing they found is that uh, in every seven common stocks that appeared in what's called the CRISP database of all stocks, including, by the way, uh, the reinvestment of dividends. Uh, But when they looked at all of those stocks since 1926, four out of seven made less than one-month treasuries. Four out of seven made less than a riskless investment. Now, some of those went broke, but not all of them went broke, or if they did eventually go broke, they may have produced great earnings for a long time. One of those examples is General Motors. Uh, it, it, it was a huge producer of national wealth, not only in the value of its stocks growing, but, but, but the dividends it paid. But eventually it filed bankruptcy. When they also looked at the lifetime dollar wealth creation, the best performing 4% of listed companies explained the net gain for the entire U.S. market since 1926. The rest of the companies, the approximately 96%, made an average of T-bill rates. Now, the other one was the four out of seven were those that underperformed T-bills. So that led me and the academics to a different conclusion than what I heard before. Remember before we said that the expected rate of return of any single stock is the average of all the stocks in that asset class. But finding out that a very small number of companies actually created the great wealth that made the stock market a good place to be, the probabilities are for people who put together their own portfolios of their 100 favorite stocks, they are probably going to underperform the total of all the companies, because when you get all the companies, you get every last one of those 4% that made the big money. 
Now, that does not suggest that some people didn't know how to put together a portfolio that only included the 4%. Maybe somebody did. But as you spread money around the market, you're going to have people that are going to build portfolios that may not own any of those great companies. So again, the bottom line is it may be, remembering we can never know the future, it may be those that own all the companies will do better forgetting about expenses that are in mutual funds, forgetting about turnover in mutual funds. They may simply do better because their portfolios do, in fact, have all of the best performers. And another important aspect that we need to understand about diversification, and that is you can own a 1,000 stocks, but when the market decides to go down, it takes almost every company with it. The number that I remember from when I was going to class in the mid-60s at the New York Institute of Finance, what they told us was that in a bear market, 85% of the companies decline. So having a broadly diversified portfolio, in fact, does not protect you from major losses. Now, the good news is that bear markets don't last forever. And so for those who are patient enough to wait for the return to new highs, it has always happened. So what we know, for example, is for the years 2000 through 2002, the S&P 500 fell 14.6% a year, and over that three-year period, $100 fell to about $62. And then it came back. But for the 10 years ending 2009, the index lost about 1% a year. Now, by the way, for that same period, from 2000 through 2009, small cap value gained 12.2. The S&P lost one, small cap value gained 12.2. International small cap value gained 13.5. REITs, U.S. REITs, gained 10.7. And oh, by the way, for the three-year period of that 2000 through 2002 bear market, when the S&P 500, $100, fell to $62, during that three years, REITs compounded at 15.1. U.S. small cap value gained 12.2. International small cap value gained 1.9% a year. So one way you can defend against that market risk, and it is a step toward another level of diversification, is isn't just having a whole bunch of 
eggs in one basket. You can own the S&P 500, but it in fact may not do as well as a basket of asset classes. Don't just own a basket of a whole bunch of eggs. Own a basket that has dozens of one kind of egg and dozens of another kind of egg and dozens of another kind of egg. And that, in fact, would have performed very well, comparatively, in the 2000 through 2002 bear market, as well as the 10-year period from 2000 to 2009. But other bear markets will come along, and that kind of diversification isn't going to help at all. And you don't know that. I will tell you that clients thought that my firm was run by brilliant people because we had the big and the small and the value and the growth, U.S. and international. We had the REITs and we had the emerging markets. We looked like heroes in that 2000 through 2002 period. Well, we weren't heroes. We just took diversification to another level. Academics told us long before then that that's what we should be doing. But then along came 2008, and that kind of diversification didn't work. And in fact, that kind of diversification didn't work in the 1929 through 32 or the 73 through 74 bear market. What did, in fact, work in 2008 was to have diversified away from stocks into bonds. And I'm not talking about market timing here, although that, that is, in fact, a, a, a way that you can diversify a portfolio. I'll talk about that a little later. But in 2008, while the stock market went down depending on what you held. If you were in the S&P 500, you were down 37%. If you, if you were in the uh, uh, ultimate buy and hold strategy that we recommend with the big and the small and the value and the growth, you would have been down 41.2%. But if you were in long-term government bonds, they were up 259 and a portfolio of short, intermediate, and long bonds and tips, uh, you would have been up uh, um, something over 7% uh, during that year the stock market was down. So another way to diversify is to have something that is totally unrelated to the ups and downs of the stock market. Bonds happen to be the best. I've talked about how gold will sometimes do well in a bear market, but not necessarily, and that gold makes less historically than government bonds do and that gold is way more volatile. So just because something doesn't go up and down at the same time doesn't mean that it has earned the rights to be part of your diversified portfolio. 
Now, another thing that you could do to diversify your portfolio is to have combine, if you will, the decisions on how much you have in stocks and what stocks do you have. Do you have big and small value and growth, U.S. international? All of those, all of those possible, possible great historically great asset classes. But then, how much do you have in bonds? And when do you change how much you have in bonds? I mean, this is this is taking responsibility for every level, almost every level of diversification that you face. The good news is that is what a target date fund is. It is taking the responsibility of equity diversification, how much in U.S., how much in international, how much in large, how much in small, at the same time as it's making the decision where you should have your money in bonds and how much you should have in bonds. That is taking diversification to a whole new level. And by the way, one of the reasons I feel so strongly about target date funds is it is a kind of management of diversification that I think 99% of young investors need. Now you can slice and dice how much you have in stocks, U.S., international, Big, small, value growth, REITs, emerging markets, commodities, all sorts of what they call alternative investments, which I'm not a believer in in most cases. But here's another level of diversification you could take. There are people who have offered you free, free asset allocation how much to put in stocks and bonds at Vanguard and Fidelity and Schwab. We do that on the Merriman site, paulmerriman.com. Rick Ferry, F-E-R-R-I, has his core four portfolios. And at Merriman, by the way, we have the two funds for life, combining the target date fund with a small cap value or a large cap value or a small cap blend, depending on what's available through your 401k. These are all legitimate ways that you could, in fact, diversify your portfolio. But how about this as a possible level of diversification? How about having part of your portfolio in a two funds for life? How about having part of your portfolio in a Vanguard portfolio using the Merriman recommendations? How about having another portion using Rick Ferry's recommendations? And then if you want to spend a couple hundred dollars, you could take a look at soundmindinvesting.com and moneyletter.com, both inexpensive. And by the way, if you wait for them to go on sale, they always go on sale at a reduced price if you wait. But Sound Mind Investing and Money Letter have been around for decades. 
And if you don't want to get this stuff free, go pay somebody for it. They both have conservative, moderate, and aggressive. Rick Ferry has the same. The, and the, at, at our website, we have the same. So you could diversify the diversifiers. Now, I'm going to come back to this uh, diversification of all these uh, different asset classes in just a second. But I can't wait to talk about the next one, so I'm going to tell you now. Dollar cost averaging is a way to diversify. And the reason it is considered by many to be a form of diversification is that you have time diversification. The dollar cost averaging strategy that you use to put your money into a 401k, putting $100 or $200 every week or two into the market, buying more shares when the market is down, buying fewer shares when the market is up, over time, instead of dumping everything in at one time, reduces your investment risk. Now, now, yes, the industry says if you have money, put it all in the market right now because the odds are that you are going to do better than the person who dollar costs average in. Yes, but let me talk about the other side of that coin. October 1987, you inherit the money from Aunt Jane, and it's a lot of money. In fact, it's so much money that, that, that it, it is going to be a life changer. You're going to be able to retire five years sooner than you otherwise would have been able to retire. And if Aunt Jane were still alive, she'd be happy for you. She's happy that you have this money, but oh, what do you do because Wall Street says you should do it? You put all your money in and then almost, well, not almost, but within a month, you could have lost over 30% of your money. And by the way, it would not be impossible for me to believe that you would come to the conclusion that this is crazy and I shouldn't be taking that kind of risk. And after the decline, you pull your money out. People were scrambling. They couldn't get a hold of their brokers to tell them to sell everything. They were scared to death that we, it was the start of a, in fact, this was in the common, it was commonly in the news. This was the start of the next depression. Get out while you can. Oh, but there's more. In my own portfolio, I use one more level of diversification. I have half my money in buy and hold. And by the way, that half is half in stocks and half in bonds. And the half that in stocks is half U.S. and half international. A little more than half value, a little less than half growth. Half in small, half in large. And uh, But then the other half, the market timing, is 70% in stocks and 30% in bonds because that combination has almost the same risk exposure as the 
stocks and bonds in the buy and hold. Now, why have I decided to add this additional level of diversification? Well, I could have half of all the money we've saved in stocks. But when the market does go down 50, 60, 70, maybe 80%, we don't know. Uh, I won't have, with buy and hold, there's absolutely zero defense against that. And, uh, and I'm uncomfortable. I've got 25% of my portfolio in absolutely buy and hold stocks, but I have another 25 that says that there is an exit strategy. An exit strategy that has performed a lot better than a buy and hold in bear markets and by the way, not so good in bull markets. And if we never have a huge bear market that loses 80%, and if I didn't add any value, having the, the market time portion of my portfolio, so be it. I would just love to never have to collect on fire insurance. I'm sitting in my office looking out over Puget Sound, it's gorgeous. Green trees, beautiful water. And um, I just hate the thought of having to call the insurance company and say, you got to send me a check. My office and the house all burned. Uh -uh. Now, I'll just keep paying those insurance premiums and accept the fact that it was a total waste of money at the end of my life. Actually, it will mean that my kids... And charities inherited less. In the meantime, it is a kind of diversification that gives me a sense of peace of mind. And on my book, Financial Fitness Forever, it's about steps to take to make more, take less risk, and improve peace of mind. And for some of us, that additional diversification, strategy diversification, has a value just emotionally. It's not about making more money. And by the way, I am not encouraging anybody who's listening to this to go out and do market timing on your own. I wouldn't do market timing on my own. I, In my case, I have the Merriman Company take care of that for me. But there are other people who are good at that. If you want to read about market timing, read the work of Meb Faber, M-E-B-F-A-B-E-R. Now, I've sat and talked with Meb. He's a legitimate market timer. There is nobody who knows how to market time that is necessarily going to make you more money. He is, Meb is a legitimate timer. The Merriman companies have legitimate timing systems but nobody knows which market timing systems are going to be the best. So what you're looking for, if you're going to go out and find somebody to do this for you, are market timers who use completely mechanical, trend-following kinds of systems. Now, having said that, yes, there are some very sophisticated models that look like they did better in the past, but I will just tell you from being around the business since the mid-60s, the ones that survive tend to be the ones that are simpler and have a fewer 
ways of uh, optimizing the past. But forget all of that. If you are comfortable with a pure buy and hold, you don't need market timing. It's not going to do anything for you because it's not likely to make you more money. The value of market timing will come if we have a huge catastrophic event. Another thing we should think about when we think about diversification is tax diversification. Some people have part of their money in taxable and some have it in tax deferred. Some people have part of their money in taxable, some in tax deferred, and some in tax free. I know a lot of advisors who recommend that people diversify amongst 401k money that is tax deferred, the traditional, and they have money that is in the uh, uh, the tax free Roth 401k. So that gives you flexibility in how you make your decisions uh, about uh, uh, taxes. Now, certainly bonds are not all the same. So not only do you have to consider if you have a limited risk tolerance that you need bonds in the portfolio to stabilize the portfolio during the worst of times, you may also want to consider the different uses of how you diversify bonds. If you go to my Vanguard recommendations, you'll find one portfolio. We've been doing this for over 20 years. It's called the monthly, the Vanguard monthly income portfolio. It's not all governments. In fact, it even has some high yield, has some Ginny May, has some short term, has some intermediate term. And what it's built to do is to be diversified with the idea of giving a decent monthly income, but part of those bonds, some of those bonds may fall in a bear market. It's for investors who want to diversify and are simply looking for the monthly income and not concerned about decline in the bond portfolio. If you looked at our recommendations inside of a tax-deferred account, you're going to find it's all government bonds. So so diversification in what bonds you use, that, that becomes an important consideration. Some people even want to diversify across several mutual fund companies because they're concerned about some catastrophic event happening to Fidelity, to Vanguard, to Schwab. Now, I was never concerned about that because at, at Vanguard, it, the, the money you have invested in those funds, that's your money. That does not belong to the management company at Vanguard. And they're kept in a custodial relationship on your behalf. The same is true at Fidelity. But there are some people who are worried about uh, what could somebody do to their computer systems? Could somebody hack in and cause havoc? Does it make sense to be at several different mutual fund companies? Well, if that's your concern... I, I, I think that's not an illegitimate thing to do. 
You can get index funds at Fidelity. You can get index funds at Vanguard. You can get them at Schwab. And some people, and I don't, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a terrible idea. Some people use more than one investment advisor because you're not a do-it-yourselfer, and you want to diversify amongst the best work of several firms. It was one of the reasons that at the Merriman Company, we, 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 we put both timing and buy and hold under one umbrella. So if people wanted to use very different strategies, we were able to combine those strategies under one roof. You didn't have to do business with several companies, but you can do that. I was listening to uh, John Bogle interview. I think it was from 2007. I'm not sure, but it, uh, it was obviously when he was still living. And he was talking about socially responsible investing. And he said he was not a big believer in socially responsible investing. He said at the most, if you're going to use socially responsible investing, don't put any more than 20%. So you would put 80% in traditional index funds and 20% into socially responsible funds. I totally disagree with that, by the way. I think if you're investing in socially responsible funds because you don't want to own tobacco companies or firearms or uh, whatever, whatever makes you feel uncomfortable about being involved in those companies, that how can you be partially socially responsible? Feel like you, you've done it now. You've got 20% in social, socially responsible funds, and, 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 and you can go ahead and do the rest with the irresponsible funds, socially irresponsible. Today, you can build a diversified portfolio, big and small and value and growth, we haven't done that yet. I know I know we should. It's on a long list of to-dos, but that is a whole other approach to diversification. What I wouldn't do is recommend that you put your money in three different actively managed funds or 10 different actively managed funds. We all know who the top 10 actively managed funds are in any asset class over the last decade or 15 years, you can get that from, from um, Morningstar. And you could just hire the, the, the 10 best and small cap value. No, I don't believe in that because it means you're going to be paying more in fees than you need to. And you're not likely, as a group, to outproduce the indexes. And then I want to talk for a second about asset classes. Um, sometimes um, it looks like putting a bunch of actively managed funds together uh, that it doesn't really represent 
more risk. I mean, the whole idea of owning 500 companies in the S&P 500 is that, number one, any one of those companies can go broke. I know it's hard to believe. Enron was number seven in the, uh, in the nation, the largest corporation when it went broke. Um, so uh, the idea of adding riskier asset classes to a portfolio and believing that you're not going to have a sense of greater volatility I'm not sure that that always works. By the way, I do believe in it. Many of you have looked with me at the ultimate buy and hold portfolio. And I want to run through ever so quickly. If I could do it in a minute, I would. But I want to talk about the implications of diversification across basically 10 different major asset classes. The S&P is one of them. By itself, it makes 10.2%. When you add large cap value, 10% to a portfolio, 90% in the S&P 500, it makes 10.4%. It increases by two-tenths of 1%. When you add small cap blend, it goes to 10.6%, another 2%. When you go to small cap value, it adds another three-tenths of 1%. When you add REITs, it adds one-tenth of 1%. And you have gone from 102 to 11%. And the standard deviation is smaller, lower than the S&P 500 on its own. And on a $100,000 investment, you make $5 million more than you did on the S&P 500 on its own from 1970 through 2018. And then you do more. You add the internationals and the risk goes up, but the risk is almost the same as what you had with the S&P 500. And by the time you've added in emerging markets and all the internationals, you've added about $9.6 million to what you made if you held just the S&P 500. This is powerful stuff if the future looks like the past. And it might. Well, at some level, it should because small is more risky. But I don't want you to think you're not going to feel the risk. Because the risk, first of all, is tracking error. Because if you're judging your return with the S&P 500, there will be years that the S&P 500 is up big, big time. From 1995 to 1999, the S&P 500 compounded at over 28%, while this combination of asset classes compounded at about 11 how do you think that would feel? How does that feel in terms of risk? Oh my God, if I don't make this money now, when am I? Or if I'd had all my money in the S&P 500, how stupid could I be? I could retire now. So tracking risk, diversification creates tracking risk 
to people who focus on something that isn't even really necessarily trying to compete with the S&P 500. Believe it or not, something I commonly heard when I diversified people between equities and fixed income, and then the portfolio didn't do as well as the equities. They couldn't figure out, why didn't we do as well as my neighbor? Or things I read about in the newspaper or magazines. Well, because you... You weren't, you weren't diversified the same way. You had half your money in bonds. The whole idea was to reduce the return and reduce the risk. And, of course, most people don't get it. And, by the way, I have probably now talked about 20 types of diversification, from advisors to asset classes to numbers of stocks, to adding bonds, to doing it yourself versus having somebody else, to to add uh, the market timing. Diversification is the most important thing that you do. But it's more than just having 100 stocks in a basket and thinking, I don't have all my... uh, Eggs. I don't have all my uh, everything in one egg. I've got many eggs in my basket. And some people will say, put everything in one basket and watch it very carefully. Others want a whole bunch of different baskets. But it's all about diversification. And I hope something I've said here or something that Rich and I said in the article will help give you a greater sense of peace of mind over building a portfolio that is likely to serve you in the future. There's what we know we know about diversification. There's what we know we don't know about diversification, and that is whether equity diversification will do as well as bond diversification. There's a lot we don't know. And then there's what we don't know we don't know. And then there's what we know we know, but we're wrong. But it may only be in our lifetime that we're wrong. It may be if we'd only lived longer, we would have been right. The success of my portfolio will not be judged properly until I die. And then we'll know if I did the right thing. And then, of course, there's what we know we know, but we don't do anything about it. And my hope with this kind of information is that you will, one, know more, and then you will do something about it. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.